0: This is Medieval Death Trip for Saturday, May 23rd, 2015, Episode 12, Concerning William Rufus, Treason, and Portents of the King's Death. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and we're back after an unplanned, uh, but not exactly unexpected, end-of-semester hiatus. This episode, we're going to be looking at some larger-scale history, the deeds of kings and barons, um, but as told in a somewhat lesser-known chronicle today concerns the reign of William Rufus, the son of William the Conqueror, who succeeded his father as the second Norman King of England. Now, William the Conqueror was the Duke of Normandy before taking the English throne from Harold Godwinson in 1066, and on his death, the dukedom went to his eldest son, Robert, while the English kingdom went to his son, William, and not much went to his youngest son, Henry. One thing this dispensation of titles highlights and reminds us of is that at this period in history in the late 11th century, being King of England was not as prestigious as being the Duke of Normandy, uh, which may seem a bit backwards to us. But imagine it's 1975 and you have the choice of being either a vice president at IBM or the CEO of this little company operating out of a garage called Microsoft. Or maybe a better analogy would be between choosing to be the mayor of New York City or the governor of uh, Idaho. No offense to Idaho, but for someone angling to engage in power politics on a major stage, being a mere mayor, or even something like lieutenant governor of California or Texas, um, that might be far more prestigious than holding what is technically a higher office in a more marginal state. Normandy is a power, even operating under fealty to the King of France. England just got conquered by the Normans, so how great can it possibly be? So when the Conqueror dies in 1087, his second son, William Rufus, ascends to the English throne. This makes him technically William II, uh, though he's very seldom called by that name. Uh, just as his father is usually styled William the Conqueror rather than William I, William II is William Rufus. So what's up with this name? Rufus is Latin for red, so he's William the Red. And this is an example of a descriptive by name. Uh, in an age before surnames were common or systematic, a by name like Rufus was an important way to distinguish individuals, especially in families or dynasties. William Rufus's brother Robert also had a by name. He was Robert Kurthose a name of rather obscure origin, but apparently having something to do with his legs, probably referring to his short stature. And before he was the conqueror, Duke William was William the Bastard, and one can see why he traded up uh, in his by name. Of course, the Norse have some of the best by names, from Eric Bloodaxe to uh, Gunnlaug or uh, Worm or Serpent Tongue. But by-names were especially important for the Normans because culturally they drew from a relatively small stockpile of uh, traditional names. The most popular was William, uh, followed by Robert, um, or Guillaume and Robert, uh, but we'll stick with the anglicized versions. Um, and other extremely popular Norman names uh, were Hugh, Ralph or Ranulf, uh, Jeffrey, Roger, Walter, and... Gilbert or Gilbert. We're going to hear a lot of these names in today's reading. Even more common than a by-name, Normans often had a house name or territorial designation based on the residence to which they were most attached, usually a fortified manor or castle. Uh, So you get formulations like William of X uh, and Robert of Y. Um, After house names you had patronymics identifying parentage. So William Fitzwilliam would be William, the son of William. A curious thing, though, uh, and here I'm drawing on Frank Barlow's book, uh, William Rufus. We don't really know if Rufus was William's by name during his lifetime, nor do we know precisely what it means. Uh, Typically, people called the Red have red hair, but it's sometimes also used to refer to a person's complexion. They can be red-faced. And the latter is what is usually assumed to be the case for William Rufus. Uh, We have descriptions of him as having yellow hair and a red face, Uh, but then again, other medieval accounts say he had yellow hair and a red beard, um, which would be the source of his name. And to add to the uncertainty, the first occurrences of the name William Rufus in the written record come only after the king's death, and stem from writers who weren't particularly close to him. Uh, In contrast, writers who actually knew and interacted with the king uh, and wrote about him never use Rufus to identify him. Uh, In fact, a much better contemporary witness says that William was known as Longsword during his lifetime. It's the historian uh, Orderic Vitalis, writing about 24 years after the king's death, who really consistently calls him William Rufus and cements that label for him for many later historians. So there's some evidence for the idea that Rufus only comes to be attached to the king later on, uh, and perhaps even in a kind of pejorative way. Having laid out all of these ambiguities, Barlow offers a rather pragmatic response that I quite like. He says, quote, it is orderic's enthusiastic propagation of the name which has given it general currency nevertheless the name has been so widely accepted in modern times and is in the presence of so many williams so useful that it would be inconvenient as well as pedantic to reject it completely and so william rufus it is anyway william rufus takes the throne secures the succession after a small war with some barons who favored his brother robert and takes the reins of state in a critical period. He is the second ruler after a major political transformation. Um, And that's the moment when a new state or dynasty has to prove that it has an authority that transcends the charisma and genius of the founder of the new order. Uh, These second reigns often mix together turmoil and challenge with uh, increasing normalization and consolidation of the state. Uh, This is Adams after Washington, Tiberius after Augustus. It is perhaps structurally inevitable that these second rulers have trouble with public relations. They're often objects of unpopular sentiment, uh, with only later historians stepping up to defend their policy achievements. They're seen as a kind of letdown after the amazing achievements of the first leader, such is largely the case for William Rufus, who comes down to us as an angry, temperamental, and rather decadent figure, a skilled warrior, but a man of questionable character. Then again, who's telling us these things? Uh, chroniclers, who are, by and large, monks or cathedral clergy. William Rufus had a troubled relationship with the church, uh, who saw him as aggressively taking for himself lands and rights that belonged to various religious houses. Uh, Because, let's remember, the church here is not just an institution of worship. It's a conglomeration of little corporations that all own and work estates and collect rents and such. Every abbey and cathedral is an economic entity, as much as a spiritual or a cultural one. Virtually every king tussles with the church as a fellow landowner, Uh, But William Rufus was especially cited for his depredations of church property rights, and so we might well be skeptical of the many allegations of moral failures uh, levied against him by a group that was particularly put out by his policy decisions. We can hear some of this in today's reading, though this story isn't about the various forms of decadence William's court was accused of. Uh, We might revisit that issue in the future. And the author of this chronicle was probably a clerk attached to the household uh, of a noble family rather than a monk in a monastery. So there's less institutional animosity to prejudice him. But you nonetheless uh, do get a portrait of a ruler who is very effective in particular spheres, but not much loved. We'll be hearing about how William dealt with some rebellious barons and accounts of how the king's death was foretold, as recounted. In a relatively short text called the Warren Chronicle, uh, sometimes also called the Hyde Chronicle, which survives in a single manuscript, British Library shelfmark Cotton Domitian A14 from our beloved Cottonian Library. And see episode six for more on that story. This chronicle is an account of the political history of England and Normandy from about 1035 uh, up to the infamous wreck of the White Ship in 1120 with a particular focus on the exploits of the Earls of Warren, um, an earldom in Normandy. It was written by an unidentified cleric in about 1157, and was probably meant to testify to the valuable service and loyalty of the Earls of Warren to the Norman kings of England, uh, since in around 1157, the family was falling out of favor with King Henry II and needed to shore up its royal relationships. The chronicle is, like so many chronicles, uh, quite derivative, borrowing a lot from William of Malmesbury's uh, Gesta Regum Anglorum*, as well as uh, the work of Orderic Vitalis, who uh, tells the story of the portents of the king's death in a version that is matched pretty closely by the version here. Um, but the Warren chronicler's account of the rebellions also contains some details not recorded uh, in our other sources, and these may well come from... Preserved family oral tradition. One quick historical clarification for the start of this excerpt. In 1091, William Rufus had invaded Normandy and took a fair chunk of it from his brother, the Duke, Uh, a consolidation of British and continental holdings that made him one of the most powerful rulers in Europe at that time. Uh, And this achievement is referenced at the beginning of today's text. Though, as we'll see, it in no way puts an end to the challenges to William's kingship. I'll be reading from the very recent 2013 edition and translation of the War End Chronicle by Elizabeth M.C. Van Houts and Rosalind C. Love. When William had therefore received Normandy and had established his rule very powerfully, he began to terrorize neighboring magnates. Then he rebelled most fiercely against Philip, king of the French, who was demanding ancient authority in Normandy, and he subjugated rebellious Maine to his own control. So that even he might acknowledge how the highest rules in the kingdom of men, and that lightning strikes the highest mountains, he was hindered more severely by his own men than by enemies' some magnates of the Norman English rebelled against him all the way to his death. There was Robert, Earl of the Northumbrians, a wealthy and powerful man who killed the King of the Scots, Malcolm, father of Queen Matilda, in battle, along with almost all of his army. When he tried to fight against King William, he was fortuitously captured by him and thrown into prison. Also, William of Ewe, a man elevated more by lineage than from uprightness, Publicly defeated in a plot against royal power, the king deprived of his eyes and rendered him useless in every respect. And William of Audreux, steward of this same William of Eau, who was unjustly accused of the same plot, so they say, the king ordered to be hung from the gallows. The magnates were distressed by grief, For this same man was distinguished in body, spirit, and lineage. But when they begged the king for his life, offering the king three times William's weight in gold and silver, the king could be dissuaded from his death neither by prayers nor gifts. Concerning this man, something is said to have happened which is worthy of report. For when he realized that he was destined for death, he totally committed himself to the Lord, and, barefoot and naked, holding a bundle of twigs, he fell down at the knees of some priest. Humbly begged for mercy and absolution of his sins, and made to beat himself most severely. And when he was being led to his death, he turned to those following him and said, "'Know that I am so cleansed of the crime of which I have been accused, "'that I pray that God will favor my soul as it passes over now.' Saying these words, before he could come to the spot, he died. Ernulf of Hesden, tall in stature, most active, and rich in possessions, was accused before the king in a way that was as unjust as it was invidious. Finally, having defended himself and won in a lawful fight between one of his men and one of the king's men, he was troubled by such grief and anger that he renounced all of his properties held from the king in England, and notwithstanding the king's unwillingness and disagreement, went away. Joining the army of Christians, he went all the way to Antioch, and there ended his last day. And although Magnets wished to administer medical care to the ailing man, it is said that he answered, As the Lord lives, no physician will touch me, unless it is he for whose love I have undertaken this pilgrimage. Now it seems to me suitable briefly to insert a miracle which took place at that time in the overseas regions of Gaul, as marvelous as it was unusual to the praise of the God who worked it. At that time, a quarrel arose concerning the condition of the church between King William and that remarkable man, Lord Anselm, the archbishop. And because the great bishop's zealous sanctity in ecclesiastical matters and the aforesaid king's proud care for the world's enticements were irreconcilable, Anselm chose to enter into voluntary exile, and heading for Rome, he went to the Lord Pope Urban and was received by him honorably and for some time was given hospitality by him with due reverence. Accordingly in those days, the face of the church of the Norman English was a languishing force, bereft indeed of a spiritual father, and oppressed from above by the encroachment, through King William's lack of care, of false pastors, and very worn down by his officials, who were nevertheless free to engage in killings and pillaging with impunity. Christ, looking down from on high upon her grief, was mercifully zealous to alleviate it. Hence, in a monastery situated in Normandy, as the report of truthful men witnesses, a certain brother, overcome by illness, had reached his last days, and lying for a long time in agony, was carried off to heaven miraculously. There he saw the Redeemer of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, sitting on a lofty throne, surrounded by such a great light and encircled by such a great multitude of attendants that no words are sufficient to relate it. And as the zealous observer of so splendid a vision lingered, he saw a girl more beautiful than the sun in her countenance and dressed in clothing superior to all the arrangement of the stars, humbly fallen at Christ's knees. And he realized from the prayers of the supplicant and the responses of the judging Lord, that she was the holy church. In fact, she offered tearful complaints about William, king of the Norman English, and asked for swift revenge upon him, claiming that for a long time she had been torn apart by his dogs and wolves rather than by officials. The most loving Christ consoled her and lifted her up and promised that a terrible revenge hung over that man. Concerning his abbot, this brother also heard, in the same vision, a grievous complaint, that on that same night he was known to have perpetrated a sin for which he ought to be very much afraid. When he had seen and heard these things, the monk came back to earth and opened his eyes to everyone's amazement, and first he gently accused the abbot who came to him and with certain signs convicted that man of what he was wanting to deny. Then he revealed to everyone those things which he had heard concerning the king, and he directed a brother to him with a letter so that he would be warned, even if belatedly, and through works of penance take pains to appease the sentence of the Lord hanging over him. And so the monk went to the king, and addressed him with due reverence. But when he revealed the vision, he was driven away by the king, and was ridiculed with these words, Whoever believes in fate or dreams will always live suspicious and unquiet, and thus will always remain foolish. And so the brother went back, dishonored and confounded. At last, God Omnipotent terrifyingly hurled at the king a shaft, which he had for a long time brandished mercifully. And so William, king of the Norman English, in the thirteenth year since the beginning of his reign, on the 2nd of August, while on a hunt, was hunted himself and struck unexpectedly by an arrow, and he died unconfessed and without the last rites, and was buried at Winchester in the church of St. Swithin, and his brother Henry ruled instead of him. It is said that on the same day a man came up and offered a gift of arrows to William as he was making his way to the hunt, one of which he, the king, gave to Walter tyrol a man of Ponthieu, and urged him to come with him. Then they entered the forest, and while they were alternately surrounding and leading on a herd of animals, this Walter, who was near the king, so they say, struck him with the same arrow and killed him instantly. There was another miracle that happened on that same day on the border of Burgundy at marcenay The venerable Archbishop Anselm returned from Rome and staying at marcenay On that same day was conversing familiarly with the blessed abbot Hugh, and among other things, making mention of the king, the abbot added, You should know that William, king of the Norman English, died today. And as everyone sat dumbstruck and marveling greatly, the aforesaid archbishop inquired with due reverence how he alone knew what everyone else did not know. Then the abbot said, Last night I saw the merciful Redeemer of all, and the just judge, Lord Jesus Christ, sitting on an exalted throne, And an infinite chorus of judges sitting with him, and King William was led into the middle and judged by all. I too was present with them, and I judged him, so you should know that it is most certainly as I have said it is. Soon the Venerable Anselm, believing the word of such a great father, ordered that his journey towards England be brought forward, and he hastily went to Gaul. There, from the news that flew in his direction, he realized that King William had died on the very same day which the said father had mentioned. So thus abruptly ended the reign of William Rufus in a hunting accident which is as shrouded in multiple versions and explanations as William's by name. The English historian Eidmer, uh, the companion and biographer of St. Anselm, who has just appeared in our story, mentions two competing accounts. As translated by Geoffrey Bozenkett, Eidmer says... On that day, after having breakfasted, he went out into the forest to hunt, and there, struck by an arrow that pierced his heart, impenitent and unconfessed, he died instantly and was at once forsaken by everyone. Whether, as some say, that arrow struck him in its flight, or, as the majority declare, he stumbled and falling violently upon it met his death, is a question we think it unnecessary to go into sufficient to know that by the just judgment of God, he was stricken down and slain. Of course, theories that the king was murdered also circulated, Um, but I think I'll pause there because a survey of the many deaths of William Rufus uh, would be a neat topic for a future episode unto itself, Uh, so we'll save that. A different bit of trivia we might end on is one of the claims to fame of the Warren Chronicle that's in evidence in our excerpt. This text is unique in its use and, as far as we know, coinage of the Latin compound adjective Norman Anglus, translated in our reading as a hyphenated Norman English, as in William, King of the Norman English. Today, of course, our adjective of choice would be Anglo-Norman, though the translators here retain the ordering of the nations in Norman Anglus because that's a meaningful choice on the part of our chronicler exactly what it means uh, remains a matter of scholarly debate. This fusion of identities is a fascinating and major element of English history, uh, politically, culturally, and linguistically. The Norman Conquest is another powerful moment of cultural hybridization that occurs in Britain, uh, one in a series that probably starts with one Neolithic tribe displacing another, Um, but that really kicks off in the historical record with the Romans conquering the Celtic Britons, then the Anglo-Saxons conquering the Romano-British, then Nordic peoples conquering parts of Anglo-Saxon as well as Celtic Britain, and then the Normans conquering the Anglo-Saxons. Conquering isn't quite the right word for all of these events, uh, but they each result in different kinds of cultural mixtures. Um, But the Norman conquest is particularly interesting for the extent of the new identity that comes into being. Both the Romans and the Anglo-Saxons intermix with the natives, um, but their own languages and cultures remain fairly dominant and aren't radically changed, um, setting aside the issue of the conversion to Christianity that both of those groups went through. But the Norman barons, and more so their children born on English estates, come to acquire a marked distinctiveness from their continental counterparts surprisingly quickly. And even though English kings will continue to be essentially native French speakers and claimants on big chunks of continental land for a few more generations, you can say that they and their barons ceased to be Frenchmen or Normans in a significant way. But the finer points of this transformation, this identity crisis, are sites of much debate. And you can see that reflected in the various explanations for what this adjective, Norman Anglus is presumed to have meant to a 12th century audience. Some have said it's really just about political boundaries, that it marks the joint uh, regnum of England and Normandy under one ruler. In other words, Norman English is basically equivalent to Austro-Hungarian, it describes a combined jurisdiction of governance, um, not necessarily a combined culture. Another interpretation is that Norman Anglus is used to distinguish the Normans of England from the Normans of the continent. They are the English Normans rather than the continental Normans. That notion begins to suggest a change of identity, uh, but only for the ruling class. The last interpretation is that the combined adjective represents a combined people, a new nation that is partly Norman and partly English, a true hyphenated identity in the way we think of it now. The trend in scholarship has tended to favor this last view for 12th century Anglo-Norman England um, over the more strictly political one. Uh, with the conquering culture coming quite quickly to see itself as affiliated with and belonging to the conquered land and its inhabitants more than to the colonial motherland, so to speak. Or, conversely, the labeling might be flowing the other way. Most evidence suggests that the writer of the Warren Chronicle uh, was of continental origin himself, probably living in Flanders. Uh, and he may have been asserting a difference as perceived from the continent, that those Normans are not the same as our Normans, so we need to indicate their otherness with a modifier. They are the Norman English. Cultural hybridization is all too easily characterized in extremes, um, either as an idealized romance of a newer, stronger nation emerging from the admixture of two parents, or as a brutal story of exploitation and appropriation and one culture cannibalizing another. The truth, as truth is wont to do, uh, no doubt has one foot in both of those stories at the same time. Well, we certainly aren't done with William Rufus and the strange nation taking shape under his family's rule, but we are done for today. It's been so long since our last episode uh, that... Its riddle seems to echo back from the mists of time, Uh, but we did have one awaiting an answer, and here it is. Two times two a clatter make, one twitches and two dance. This is a descriptive riddle from the Claret Riddles, uh, without too much trickery or metaphor to it. The answer is simply a lamb, which has four clattering feet, a twitching tail, and two dancing horns. As for our next riddle, you can find the answer tucked away inside today's episode. The riddle is, what flies without flesh? That's straightforward enough. What flies without flesh? I'll have the answer on our next episode, which really ought to be coming up back on our normal fortnightly schedule, which I hope to keep up for most of the summer, though we may have a little podcast vacation in August or September. We'll see. But until then, you can follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast. You can write me with questions, corrections, or anything else at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And you can get old episodes and see more information about our texts at MedievalDeathTrip.com. So until next time, thanks for listening.